I kind of almost can picture what a thousand people looks like standing outside a you know a big park or something like that. What about fifty thousand? What does fifty thousand look like? Do you even get your brain around that? Barely. Big rock concert that I wouldn't go to because I like to go to smaller clubs. Because <laughs> it's too many people. Yeah. What does it take to become a successful writer or artist? There are some destructive myths out there about what a creative career is supposed to look like. And we're kept in our lane by the undermining belief that as artists, we're somehow incapable of building autonomous, sustainable careers if we choose the work that's closest to our hearts. So we're gonna tear down those myths and get the truth by going to the source. Incredible professional creatives who followed every path but the expected one to success on their own terms. I'm cartoonist, author, and coach for creatives, Jessica Abel, and this is The Autonomous Creative. Hi there, and welcome. I've invited Matt Madden to join me again as co-host to talk about a huge problem for creatives who are trying to make a decent living with their work, but nothing they do seems to get them to a point of stability and security. And of course, there is so much to do. Social media tech giants and marketers with tactics and apps to sell all constantly scream at us that all we need to do is use their thing every day, constantly, and the implication is that success will follow. That triggers a toxic self-blame cycle where you think if you only could possibly do all the things that marketers tell you you should do, like posting constantly on social media, sending out email newsletters, starting a YouTube channel, blogging, all the things that you could make your creative business successful. But you can't do it all. There are literally not enough hours, even if you could plan and produce all that content. So you blame yourself for your business flatlining. It leads to a cycle of hopelessness and self-loathing and tons of anxiety. But if you're listening, and this is the case for you, you've got to know that it's not your fault. There are hidden assumptions baked into the idea that if you just did enough mass marketing stuff, you'd make a living that reveal why it's just so hard and possibly flat out wrong for indie creators. We're going to talk about what's lurking beneath and how knowing that can lead to healthier, happier decisions. Hi, Matt. Welcome back. Hey, Jessica. So I wrote an article last week where I broke down the missing math in the 1,000 true fans model, which comes from this famous blog post by Kevin Kelly. That's that thing where if you've got um, a certain number of dedicated fans who are going to pay you money every year or a month or whatever, you're going to make a happy living. Yeah, the basic idea is that an independent creator who can find 1,000 true fans who will pay the creator $100 per year uh, for whatever it is that the creator is doing can make a really solid living, which, you know, on the face of it, that's true, right? A hundred times a thousand equals a hundred thousand. Right. I first heard about that from, um, I think, Chris Rock talking about it, the stand-up comedian. And in that kind of model, like, oh, you do stand-up comedy, you're going to clubs and you're charging, you know, whatever, 75, a hundred bucks a ticket. And, you know, that seemed like a scale of economy that I could imagine that working. Right. I'm sure it works for Chris Rock. <laughs> right. Exactly. When I try and picture that with, uh, you know, mini comics or even, you know, published graphic novels, it's, it sounds uh, sounds a bit harder to pull off. Right. Like somebody who publishes comics like you do, you know, like last year you put out a short book called Bridge, mm -hmm. which was something you worked on multiple times over you know, 10 years or something. It wasn't, didn't take 10 years to do, but you know, it was sort of no, like- No, it was a long, yeah, a long right. developing project. And you published your beautiful big graphic novel, Ex Libris, which took you 
many years of sort of developmental thinking and then probably three years of solid work on it, correct? Oh, yeah. And so if your true fans were to buy both of those books, and they are buying both of those books, mm-hmm. you do have true fans and they're buying both books, your you know, profit on those two books might come to... Uh, two dollars. No, it's more than <laughs> a lot more than that. But the retail total for both those things would be twenty nine ninety five plus seven dollars. So, as they say, you do the math. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the take I get of that, whatever, is uh, seven or eight percent in the case of Ex Libris. Let's be generous and say you make three or four dollars off of those books, you know, mm-hmm. collectively or something like that. So, you need a lot more than a thousand true fans to make a hundred thousand dollars just you know yeah. you have to multiply it out especially if it takes me five years to put a book out right exactly so like you can't <laughs> in terms of somebody who's trying to be an author and produce books even producing a hundred dollars worth of stuff that somebody could buy in a year is really hard one of the things that kelly sort of added later on to his post as a as a condition is you can't have a publisher you have to self-publish for this to work for the thousand to work because you need to be making all the money all money, yeah. <laughs> and not, you know, having a large chunk being taken by an agent or publisher or whatever. There are a lot of little caveats there, a lot of, you know, details, but let's just say, aside from this problem of how do you produce that much stuff, which is a problem even for me, you know, that I have, uh, I sell courses that are more expensive. They're more than a hundred dollars. They range from between like 400, or I have something that's like 150 up to like about $800. Um, but I don't put out new ones basically ever, you know, like very, you know, I put out one new course last year. I don't intend to do another course. I don't foresee another one. So it's not like there's this constant flow of new stuff. So that's one issue that can come up for people. Either they can't put out enough, uh, the price point is too low, or they just have no intention of continuing to produce new stuff constantly. So that's Mm -hmm. one issue. Let's put that aside though and say you could somehow have a hundred dollars worth of stuff to sell to a thousand people. This is where the stuff that we just talked about is the obvious surface level stuff that anybody who's selling stuff could think about. You know, it's like very, very obvious, but the hidden part is different from that because the hidden part is this idea of conversion. This is a word that is pretty new to me and I only recently I'm starting to get a sense of what it means. So please explain for for us (laughs) lay people out here. Okay, so the idea of conversion is this. Conversion is any time you have a number of people who you ask to do something, and then some percentage of them do that thing. So in my blog post, I think I used the example of like a group of friends you asked to go to brunch, and you have 10 friends on like a text, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, chain, and you say, let's all go to brunch, and four of them say yes. That is a conversion of 40%, right? Four out of 10 said yes to going to brunch. Right. And so you're trying to figure out basically how effective is my asking for something by using conversion rates. Right. Because the point is that that smaller number of people that actually convert to actually doing something, right? Well, the point is that your conversion is almost never 100%. When you're asking people to buy stuff or to take actions that involve their time and energy and, and money, it's almost never 100%. It's often very, very far from 100%. And so yeah. the point is not so much the number of people who do the thing. The point I want to get at is that the number of people who you have to ask, right? So that's a multiplier on the number of yeses you need. So if you need a thousand yeses, right, 
If you need a thousand yeses. If you want to invite a thousand people to brunch with you, how many people do you need to invite? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so the thousand true fans who need to be spending this hundred dollars, how many people do you need to ask in order to get a thousand yeses? That is the question that we're trying to get at here. That's the conversion rate. And conversion rates can be all over the map. You know, things vary based on the group of people you're asking. Are they people who all know you already? Are you asking total strangers? Like there's all different kinds of elements that go into it. And so there's no one conversion rate that is a good conversion rate. I was just listening to a podcast the other day about this because that's how I roll. And they were talking about how the only good conversion rate is one that's better than the last time you did it. But if you've never mm -hmm. done it or never figured it out, you don't know what that is. So just for the sake of round numbers, typically conversion rates of like 0.01 to 2% are considered solid conversion rates for sales. Yeah, that so was a surprising thing for me. I, I first became aware of that concept when through my mailing list and I don't have a big mailing list. I have, say I have like a thousand people or something and I would send out a mailing and I get a conversion in this case, not of sales, but just to people reading the, the, my mail, you know, mm -hmm. like opening it and, and clicking on stuff. And it would be a conversion of like, you know, three or 4%. And I'd be, I would show it to you. And I was like, I was really dejected about it. That seems really low, but apparently that's actually a pretty decent number. I mean, I'm making, I'm making up that number. I don't actually remember what it was, but. Right. To, to be clear, there's a number of people talk about a lot, which is open rates. And that's the open rate is what you're talking about of people, mm -hmm. the number of people who open an email out of the number of people you send it to. And it's not going to be hundred percent either. The smaller list that's pretty passionate. You have a lot of true fans, you know, the people on your list care about your work. And the smaller your list is, the more likely that's the case. If you have a really big list, it's likely that your rates are lower because there are a lot of sort of people who've been there for a while or just kind of hanging out and don't care. But yeah. for your list, it's, I think your open rate is probably pretty high. It's probably 50% plus. But your click rate, which is it's a type of conversion. We don't usually say conversion about it because people aren't necessarily taking the final action of signing up for something or whatever. Right. But if you have a button for clicking, it's probably, you know three to five percent six mm -hmm. you know eight percent maybe yeah or, or less sometimes or less sometimes depends on what you're asking that's yeah. exactly the point yeah exactly yeah, yeah. the point so if you're paying attention to what you ask people do and how you ask them to do it in your buttons or whatever your links you say you say something that makes people think oh i want to click this pay attention when you do that, you know, when you get those higher rates, because that's something that you want to use again, right? Mm -hmm. That's build the purpose of understanding these numbers is so you can do, do what works again and build on what works and don't do the things that don't work. Right. Okay. So let's get back to sales conversion because that's a different number. And as I said, the um, sort of industry standard that's thrown around is anywhere from like 0.01% for, and that's like something like a giant e-commerce company that's just asking people to buy stuff from an email. They might get a very low conversion rate, but it's enough because there's a zillion of them up to maybe to, if you're really, if you're really engaged list, people who really care, maybe you get 3%, but let's look at that thousand again. If you want to sell a thousand people something, and you need to get those thousand people to say yes. That means fifty thousand offers if you are converting at two percent. I mean, you go from a thousand. You're like thousand. Yeah, I can understand a thousand. I mean, I I kind of almost can picture what a thousand people looks like standing outside a you know a big park or something like that. 
What about 50,000? What does 50,000 look like? Can you even get your brain around that? Barely. Big rock concert that I wouldn't go to because I like to go to smaller clubs. Because <laughs> it's too many people. Yeah, too many people. And okay, so let's take that number and go like, oh, 50,000. That is a lot. That's intimidating. Maybe it doesn't hey, have wait, to be just to, high. Just to clarify, you're saying you need to reach 50,000 people just to, to have a chance of getting a thousand of them to buy whatever it is that you're trying to, to sell for a hundred dollars. Right? right. Or you do, you're selling multiple times throughout the year. It doesn't have to be necessarily one hundred dollar thing, but just for the sake of simplicity, we're saying we're trying to sell a hundred dollar thing to a thousand people. Yes. You need to offer this hundred dollar thing to 50,000 people basically. So, you know, my email list, it hovers around like 6,000. I don't have 50,000 people to offer to. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't get a thousand sales when I offer stuff that just doesn't happen. So that already sort of blows this thousand fans model out of. Complicates it at least. Makes it complicated, right? So let's go one step further though. So those 50,000 people that you are offering to, you're putting your offer in front of, they have to already be there knowing who you are in some sense, even if they're not your true fans yet. They have to kind of know who you are at least, mm-hmm. uh, probably be on your email list or at least in some kind of f- framework in which you can make this offer. Part of the scene, like they're comics readers or they're stand-up comedy fans or something. No, no, no. No? They need to know you. They need to mm. know you okay. already. So they need to be like on some platform, say, where you have access to this group of people. So. Those 50,000 people that we're trying to offer to, they need to already know who you are. They need to already be in your system somehow. But you have to get them there somehow, right? They have to have gotten Mm -hmm. to that point somehow. And I'm going to throw out another general rule of thumb kind of number here that I I see frequently. I don't know how reliable it is, but it's certainly something like this, right? How many individual people need to see your stuff multiple times for them to decide to become part of your audience that you can offer to. What do you mean? Like I show them the cover of my book 10 times before they actually notice it and click on a link or something? Yeah. Like they hear you on a podcast and they, uh, you know, somebody shares a post or they see something like come through their social media feed that they're not, that, but they're not subscribed to you or like they are, they have followed you on social media, but they're not really paying attention. They're like a YouTube a subscriber and they see your stuff show up every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Marketers say, and again, I don't know where this number comes from, so, but it's something like this, that people need to see, need to encounter your material in a substantial way, not just like skimming by, but like actually looking at it and then, you know, letting it go seven to 20 times mm-hmm. before they're, they kind of know who you are, like before they actually yeah. Understand it's- where you fit in their world and then make a decision to either opt into your audience or not. Right? It sounds a bit related to that thing we tell our kids that when they try new foods, they have to they have to taste it, you know, seven to ten times and eventually <laughs> they'll learn to like it. We're trying to like uh, getting people to taste us uh, over a number of time times. That I'm hoping is- that they will get a taste for us. That is exactly right. I've never thought of that before. And that is perfect because that's exactly right. It's like Sometimes they try something the first time and they're like, this is amazing. I love it. I'm into it. But most of the time, even stuff that they are like, like they're crazy for avocado, for example, 
I couldn't get them to eat avocado for the first like year I was trying. They just wouldn't, mm -hmm. they just wouldn't do it. And now you cannot, we can't keep enough in the house. Yeah. So, so we are avocado. <laughs> you're an avocado. Um, but, but also there's, there are times when you, the first time you see something, you're like, oh my God, this is for me. And you deep dive. And, you know, I think that there, you have to average this over, you know, numbers of people. So here's the other thing. In order to have the 50,000 people to offer to in your audience, people have to decide to be in your audience. They have to decide to be paying attention enough to be offered to. So you know what it's like when you see a social media post and somebody's trying to sell something to you and you have no idea like who they are or what they're doing. They just sure. like say, hey, buy this thing. And we all as creators or most of us as creators are just like, oh, I don't want to do that. Ew, icky, icky. And of course you don't want to do that because the people that you're putting it in front of have not actively opted into your like offer zone, whatever that is, you know, your yeah. email list or some kind of place where it's like you've said that you want to hear from this person in that kind of way. There's yeah. nothing wrong, by the way, nothing wrong with telling people that your stuff is for sale and asking people to buy stuff. Please don't misinterpret this as saying that. But, you know, being pushy about sales with people who do, have not opted in doesn't work very well. Basically, people have to opt into your kind of you know, your world to a certain extent. And not everybody who encounters your stuff is going to opt in to your world. Like people who, you know, see Ex Libris in the front window of Shakespeare and Company bookstore, a lot of them are just going to glaze over and not pay attention. And some people are going to be like, oh, that looks interesting. Or like they see the staff pick card or whatever. And they're like, mm -hmm. most people don't pay any attention. Some people are going to pick it up and read the card and pay attention to what's in it. And then some of those people are then going to buy the book, right? Right. So that first outer group, again, totally rough number, totally doesn't you know necessarily correspond to your particular reality, depending on how these things are happening in, in reality. But it's something like 10% maybe, if you're lucky, mm -hmm. of the people who encounter your work are going to say, yeah, I want to hear more about this. It might be less. It might be more. But let's just say 10%. So if it's 10% of the people who encounter your work and marketers say that you need to actually encounter it a number of times before you're awake to it enough to say yes mm -hmm. to hearing more about it. But of those people, like if you say it's 10% of people who encounter your work who say, yes, I want to hear more about it, then we're talking about putting it in front of 5 million people. That is a very daunting number. Right? Isn't it crazy? But I, it makes sense, though, because uh, it takes so long. Like, even as someone who's always trying to learn about new comics and writers and new music and movies, I, I actively am looking for stuff, but I regularly will you know, encounter a name or just see an image of a book cover or hear a snippet of music and kind of like follow away, like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Maybe I'll look into that next time it comes up. And I've, it's, I've experienced that as a, you know, from the reader side where like it really takes a lot quite a few times for something to really jog my attention enough to be like all right now i'm gonna actually look this person up you know follow them on social media or check out a video on youtube or whatever it is yeah exactly and and again like, another caveat about this is like for example with your book you know you've had well more than a thousand sales at this point and it's not you know has it been in front of five million people plus no probably hasn't but you're also, you already have people who are in your audience who are, uh, you've sold to before. So like that's a warmer audience. Mm -hmm. And so the conversion rates are totally different there. And also your publisher on Civilized Books has 
fans of the, what they do who are going to buy your book even if they don't know you. You know, there's a lot of other things going on there. So sure. I, I just want to make sure that people don't understand that I'm literally saying every single author has to have 5 million people, you know, in order to just sell a thousand books. Like that's not, it's not one to one. The point is orders of magnitude. So the point I'm trying to make is not so much let's, the specific numbers, but that we're talking about orders of magnitude bigger than a thousand. Of people that need to see or encounter your work before they'll pay attention to it, much less uh, buy it, right? Right, it's exponential. Like you, the the conversion rate from people who you're offering to to sales is X, and the conversion rate from people who, you know, see your work somewhere and th then sort of enter your audience is is Y. That's an exponential equation. No matter what your conversions rates are, like the numbers of people who need to see stuff and be exposed to your work is so high compared to what we think about in terms of what we need in order to make the work pay for itself, essentially. Right. So like a lot of, you know, creative people, I've got my mailing list, I'm on social media, I try and get on podcasts, and I do events to promote my books when they come out. And it really starts to seem like a flog for very little return. I just feel like I'm banging my head and, and uh, burning the candle at both ends after a while trying to get people to pay attention to my work. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, we were literally talking about this at lunch where you're like, I have this list, I have this, 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 and I need to do all of the things and they're all equal priority and I don't know how to choose, right? Because it's yeah. all the different things I need to do. We're all on the debunking train here. So I'm going to debunk a little more. The impression that you get from like tech giants is that if you just post every day, then you're going to make a middle-class living somehow. Like there's, you know, those things are somehow going to like come together and work. <laughs> And it's just not true. Even if you get really good at posting so that people are engaging, the, the volume you need to sell in order to make a living from something that is a low cost, low profit thing like a book is insane, right? So what is social media good for then? What should I be doing with it? I mean, social media is a great tool. And, and really, like when you think back 10, 15 years ago, not having this, it's amazing that we have access to this. We act, actually can be in touch with all of these people around the world. None of what I'm going to say means that you can't use it and have some effectiveness. It's just not one plus one equals two. Like, it's not that simple. I read a really interesting article by Regina Anagino. Uh, she wrote an article called Social Media Equals Sharecropping? That clarified a key insight for me. And we'll definitely link to this in the show notes. What she said what she pointed out is that it just doesn't serve social media platforms to help you build a business on their platform. They want to keep you poor and posting, like continuously, desperately posting, looking for attention, because that is actually their business model. You are both the producer of anything valuable that they do, anything on the platform that's valuable, it's because people are posting, right? Mm -hmm. And you are also the product that they sell in the form of your data and your attention. So- they need you there doing all this stuff, like churning out material in order to bring in attention because that's all that's good about social media is the social part of the people. Right. Um, but, and so they can sell more attention, right? Mm -hmm. So you can buy ads, but they will never, these social media companies will never create an ecosystem that's actually built to help you organically make sales yeah. and take people off the platform because it just doesn't serve them. And I get that that sharecropping analogy because there is a sense of like 
almost like indentured servitude to uh, the social media. Once you get a bit of success, I see that a lot, you know, just like YouTube videos that I watch where you'll see someone who gets popular and then almost invariably within a year or so, they'll, there's a post where like, guys, I'm really burnt out. I need to take a break. I just can't, eat, can't keep up the pace of like, you know, this sort of demand of feeding the machine, uh, even mm -hmm. if you are making a living from it, uh, it's just really grueling. Totally. There doesn't seem and to be an off ramp from it. It's like designed to keep you going. Well, I think what's important to understand about social media is that unless you want to commit yourself to mass marketing, and I, what I mean is like becoming an Instagrammer, like an Instagram influencer, becoming a YouTuber. And like, that is how you're going to build your audience. And you can, you can build an audience of millions that way. You know, that is an option for people, but it means a full-time job, right? Unless you want to do that, you're not going to win the algorithm because the algorithm is designed to keep you in there producing stuff, keep you poor, basically. They love people who are Instagrammers who are Instagram influencers producing all this stuff and bringing people in. And, you know, so they're going to help you to a certain extent if that is your goal. But if you're just going to come in and post some little stuff, you know, it's not going to break through algorithmically, except, you know, every once in a while, just totally randomly. So instead, you have to treat it as a relationship building tool. And I think that it actually is quite effective at. So like, you know, making friendships and having conversations and all that kind of stuff, which is fabulous if you don't need 5 million people to be paying attention to your stuff, but like 500 or even 5,000, like then you can actually use it effectively within that mode. You don't have to show up all the time. You don't have to be posting like a machine because you're not trying to use Instagram the way Instagram tells you you should be in using Instagram or mm -hmm. replace your platform here. Basically all the platforms have, you know, they're different, but they're, they all use this basic model. Right. And you know, the thing is, it's like we... We are not Random House, right? We're as indie creators, we are, you're not even publishing your own work, but you could, you know, and even either way, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't, uh, Uncivilized Books isn't <laughs> Random House either. They also have low profit ma margins on their individual products. Their individual products are inexpensive, right? They're selling right. books, they're selling, you know, ebooks or, you know, audio, audiobooks or whatever, but they have huge volume, huge volume. And because they have such big volume, they can have a large, luxurious office building on Broadway full of employees who are paid salaries and benefits. Not high salaries, maybe, but they have salaries, right? Mm -hmm. They have entire departments devoted to advertising and marketing and, and publicity. You know, it's really hilarious, actually, as I was getting ready to record this, I got the Random House newsletter for authors with five social media tips for authors. <laughs> <laughs> They want you, you know, when you're published by a conventional publisher, they want you to have a platform and to be really good at social media, but nobody's talking about how much of a job it is, you know, it's really crazy. Yeah. We've definitely experienced that. Yeah. But I think that the thing is that we as self-publishers, small publishers, you know, when you go look for tips for social media for authors or whatever, they're all framed as if you have the resources of Random House to get this done. And mm -hmm. we just don't. You know, this this kind of advice, like just post every day on Instagram and have a YouTube channel full of entertaining and professional videos and write a blog and promote your blog. This is literally a full-time job. This is the full-time job of that department full of marketers at Penguin Random House. Yeah, who are getting a salary for it. Who are getting a salary for it and don't have to do anything else. Like yeah. that is what they do. Yeah. So it's just, it, I think that it's a comparison trap, right? Where we, we talk about the comparison trap all the time with other artists where we look at somebody who seems to be on the outside, seems to be really successful. 
and comparing ourselves, what we know about what's not working for us to what we see working for somebody else, which is usually wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, of course, what we do usually on this podcast is get behind that picture and find out what's going on. That's one kind of comparison trap. This is a different kind where we're comparing ourselves to a multinational corporation and their approach to marketing. And all of the stuff we're being told about marketing basically is for that scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, to to do that level of promotion for your own stuff more than, you know, like I've been, and I've been doing that basically with uh, with Ex Libris, which came out in uh, in November, trying to post about the book uh, regularly and share images of it and trying to keep it creative and not just feel like you're flogging people with, uh, but I had to stop at one point just because I, I, I could only have so many images of my own book cover. I felt like in my feed, it was starting to overwhelm it. <laughs> I had to like kind of step back and take a break. And I'm actually, I've been on like a almost going on two month social media break. I'm getting ready to get back on there, which, you know, is like goes against the, those sort of rules. Like you're supposed to be out there flogging all the time, but. Well, that's the algorithm. That's the right. thing is like, you were trying to master the algorithm. That consistency is really, really important. But if you're using it as a relationship tool, it still counts, but it's, not the same. Yeah. I just want, you know, new people to discover my book. And I guess to that, in that sense, I do, I'm hoping for the algorithm to, to help out. So it's, it's kind of a, an unresolved problem there, I guess. Like, I don't want to just be sharing uh, images to my same group of fans and friends and family that already know my stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, that is an ongoing problem with social media. Social media is both ephemeral and it's limited. It doesn't show, it doesn't even show your content to all the people who follow you, much less people who don't follow you. So I think that is another big misconception about social media for most people, which is that it's going to grow your audience, which it does not naturally do. Again, the job of the algorithm is to keep people on the platform and keep them scrolling it's not to help you build your business <laughs> i mean is there a way another way to build a business if that's what you're trying to make a living from your art because i definitely feel that like the social media i feel like i am doing effective work there but mainly reaching readers that already know my work you know i'm, I'm doing less of like finding new people so uh what's the answer there again so it is a relationship tool and so you're using it as a relationship tool and i think that's yeah great you know, yes, do that. But in terms of the original question of this exponential math of the thousand true fans model, to get back to that, that that's the core problem, right? So it's like, it's easy when you have something that you're offering already, like you have this book, you're focused on the book, you want to sell the book to get into a cycle where you're just looking at the tactics for that book. But the bigger picture is the thousand true fans model isn't about selling a book. It's about making a living. Mm-hmm. It's about having right. a sustainable career. And the question, the answer to that, there are a couple of different ways to address that um, discrepancy that's built into that model. One is, as I said, this thing of uh, taking the path of really mastering mass marketing. So mastering YouTube, Twitch, Instagram at the, in- at the influencer level. This is a full-time job. I mean, it's something that you would have to commit yourself to, but it can work if you do it right. I mean, a lot of people, um, let me just say, there are people who make this work and not, yeah. and there's also, there's other, you know, revenue streams that come with that, like advertising, whatever. 
but that's it's a whole kind of being a creator that really is much more about yeah mass marketing video that kind of thing than it is about being an author uh cartoonist whatever where you have need a lot of time in your studio to make the thing you're trying to make so that's one option right it is an option and i don't want to you know anybody who's sort of like yeah i'm down then there are teachers who teach about that and i think that getting serious about it is the way to go. You go, that's what I'm doing. But if you look, think about that and you just think, oh my God, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's such, it's a very all absorbing, the people, you know, like I said, the people and the people I follow that are, appear to be successful. I, I imagine them being very stressed out behind the scenes and it's basically all they do. Like if you're again, in my example, a cartoonist and I want to have like a YouTube channel or something where I talk about comics, it's probably going to take all my time away from actually drawing. Certainly the way I tend to do things, uh, which is to draw very slowly. So it doesn't really, you know, it's, it's like a non-starter for, for me. And I think for, for a lot of people to think about being a sort of full-time social media presence in a way that actually would like make money. Yeah. And I think not just because of the time involved, but also because most people I know don't want to do that. They yeah. don't want to be a video creator or an Instagrammer or whatever. Like just, it's just, they're just not into it. Yeah. Um, I'm much more likely to encounter people who say they want to get off social media permanently than I want to get on social media all the time. <laughs> exactly. Way more common. So the other major option for creators is to offer things that are more expensive, like a lot more expensive. So instead of making, you know, $5 off a sale, you make $5,000 off a sale. And you can easily see how the exponential math on that one would start to bend in your favor. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a lot of, like that immediately raises questions and. Well, for me, it raises an instant question of, do I start charging $5,000 for my graphic novels? And the answer is no there. So I need to, it tells me I need to come up with a different model there, but maybe we'll get back to that. Well, in the previous episode, we talked about that yeah. a little bit. We talked about like, what could that look like for you? And we were talking about the idea of becoming a book coach or a comics coach, you know, where you'd help people finish their books. So it, it does mean being extremely flexible about your self-conception of what your job will be. And there are other options too. You know, there, you could get a job. A lot of people have a job. That's very, very common to have a job, either part-time or full-time that allows you to not depend on your creative work. Uh, you could have a partner with a job who's willing to support you. You can invest in real estate. Like you can, there's other things you can do to make money that isn't trying to build a giant audience for your creative work. I had one client actually point out the licensing model, which is where you sell rights to your designs to product companies. Um, sure. I mean, yeah, that's another model. It's a thing you could pursue, but it's an entire That's a whole other skill business set. model, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, an entire different thing. So if you're into that, sure, go ahead, you know, try it. But that's, that's a whole other thing. So if you're just talking about trying to sell something you can make or do to people, that's basically what we're talking about. Either you have to sell to a lot more people and that means mastering mass marketing, or you have to sell something that's much more expensive. And that means not selling what you're selling now, but selling something different. Like you mm -hmm. have to actually change your mind about what that thing is going to look like. Like what are some examples of scaling up to, to like a different offer. Say you're like a, say you're a podcaster, you do a podcast and you have to get a Patreon and it's just not bringing in enough money with, and some advertising. What would be like a, a, a jump to this next level of a more expensive offer? Uh, you could produce other people's podcasts. You could use your skill set to 
produce podcasts. You could project manage podcasts. You could become an audio producer and like just do the production part, or you could do, you know, script writing, whatever, depending on what your skills are and what you like to do. It's a great example, actually, and because I guess, there's tons of market for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And tons of podcasters out there, too, struggling to make a living, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. And then the other question is, how, I mean, the related question is, like, how do you muster up the gumption to, to ask for more money for it? Because, like, I can imagine saying, yeah, I'll help out with your, you know, do the production on your podcast or do mastering your podcast is another thing that would be good. But, like, how do you, I think most people, most artists especially, I find, are inclined to be like, well, just, you know. Give me 150 bucks and I'll, I'll take care of it. So how- well, I, there's, I, there's that's a complex question, and I hope yeah. we'll be able to get back to that in future episodes. The the basic answer, though, I think, is treating your business as a business, mm-hmm. looking at it as a creative business, and seeing, like we talked about in the last episode, looking at what your needs are, what your time requirements are, your, for lack of a better word, like cultural requirements, like how do you like to work with people? Do you like to work with groups or individuals? You know, that kind of thing. Right. Do you like to do video or not? You know, all the things that you know about yourself and how you want to work and using those as a way of developing this offer mm-hmm. and then setting up the operational side of your business so that clients who come on feel like you know what you're doing. Right. <laughs> you know how to bill them. You have a way to take money. Like you have a website that has at least a page that is like, here's what you get. Um, you know, project management, deadlines, like all of these things, they're all things that we use for ourselves for the most part anyway, if we're already working as creative professionals. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of thinking about how does this, how to present this to clients, how to put this in, you know, put this together in a system that makes makes sense. And this is what we're going to be doing in the incubator program when I launched that at the end of, um, end of February. So anybody who's looking for help, help is coming. But yeah, that's the, that's the short answer, I think, for this, is that you, you come up with what is the offer that you're going to try, and of course, you don't know if it's going to work until you try it. And then if you think, well, this is the price point I need, then you think, well, what goes with that price point? How, what are the things that I would need in order to pay that price point? Mm-hmm. What are other people going to need in order to say, I feel like I've gotten value for my money? Maybe another way to think of it, I'm just thinking now, is like another way of thinking about the five-year plan, like that's sort of an idea that... I've used over the years of, you know, have my, I do my kind of yearly checklist. I look at what I've done in the year and I look at what I want to be doing by next year and then five years and, you know, 20 years ahead and so on. But I tend to do it honestly in sense of like, well, by five years from now, I'd like to have, you know, two more books finished. You know, I'd like to spend some time abroad, the sort of kind of goals of things I want to have accomplished. But it sounds like you're saying it would be worth envisioning that from like a, almost like a, like a lifestyle point of view, like sort of like, I want to, you know, have a house and be able, you know, and be able to travel abroad. And yeah, uh, I want to be know, able to pay for travel I wanna, abroad. Yeah. I want to have to, I, I, you know, I know my comics aren't going to make money, so I want to be able so, so reframing it as like, I want to have the, the freedom to be able to make, you know, experimental comic books uh, and stuff like that. And then work, work back from there. Yeah. I think that that's smart. And yes, thinking, in, and let's not go five years. Let's go a year. Let's yeah. go two years and say, where do I want to be in a year financially in terms of security? And it's just a sense of, I think we talked about this last week a little bit, the idea of being well-resourced, the idea of feeling like you are taken care of, that there's not this like screaming anxiety all the time about what's going to happen next and next paycheck and, or not even next paycheck, just check like how, who, when are you going to get paid and how is it enough? And, you know, all that right. stuff and just kind of 
be released from yeah. that? Like, what would that look like for you? And then how can you plan a way to get there? And again, it's not going to be whatever you're doing now that isn't working. It isn't going to magically start working. You have mm-hmm. to do something differently in right. order to get there. But I do want to say one thing, which is you say, oh, my comics aren't going to pay for anything. All of the amazing things you've done throughout your career, all of the things you've learned, the things you've published, the things you've talked about, they may not be directly monetizable in the sense that beyond a certain point, you know, you can make a few thousand dollars off of this and that. Sure. But all of that is what means that your new endeavor can be hugely successful because you're, you bring so much experience and richness to it. So I just want to kind of reframe that a little bit because there's sure. this way in which I think it get, we can get really dismissive about the work that we love doing, but we're like, oh, I'm so frustrated with it because it doesn't make the money I want it to make. It is why you can do something else. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Yeah. If you're doing creative work and you're sharing it with people, you are building up a, a relationship with people and a body of work that has real impact on people. And I can totally see, you know, kind of switching your point of view on it and, and assessing it and being like, oh, this really has value. And maybe the books or the, the drawings or the music you're putting out is not necessarily going to make tons of money, but it's going to lead to relationships and, and ideas that could uh, lead to other opportunities. It's why you can do, it's why you can move into this new phase and do what you want to do and have that flexibility and know that you have that solid base and have those relationships that are going to lead to revenue. Um, yeah, no, the work that you've done is incredibly valuable. You know, when I made my pivot from being basically trying to be a full-time author to being very much a part-time author and coach and teacher doing autonomous, creative, creative focus workshop, uh, that pivot, that moment was, it was really challenging for me because I thought, does it mean that nothing I've done through the 25 years of my career matters anymore? Mm -hmm. And it took a little while for me to calm down from that and realize like, I couldn't do what I'm doing now. I couldn't teach the things I'm teaching now. We couldn't have this conversation if I didn't come out of that background, if I didn't have all of that experience to draw on. Right. I mean, we talked about that about last time too, that like everything you're doing now comes pretty directly out of, we talked about the Out of the Wire podcast you did after the Out of the Wire book, but really back to even the Art Babe website and your like mini comics making guide, you know, that was like the the, the first sign of your impulse to, uh, to, to share and teach stuff. Um, Which still gets more hits than yeah. almost anything else on my website. Still up there somewhere. <laughs> it's up there. Uh, yeah, so totally like the, the stuff that we do, and especially, you know, it's a, a, a bonus of getting older and having more experience as you get to look back and say like, oh, I, I can actually use this in a, in a creative way that might actually bring in some money in a satisfying way. Because, you know, I, I again, we talked about this last time, we, we have made money off our art, but in ways that have been ultimately frustrating, you know, for the last 20 years, a sort of adjunct teaching model, the freelance slog and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. um, again, it's like not about can you make money? Yes, you can. But it's like, how are you going to do it in a way that you're you're happy with and that it's actually sustaining. Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm, that I'm still very much trying to figure out for myself. Luckily, you're way ahead of me, so we're doing all right <laughs> with the family. So thank you for that. But it's creative reuse, you know? It's it's yeah. creative reuse of these this deep well of resources that you have available. Um, and I think that creative people are really well positioned. If they could just kind of, you know, like unclench from that idea that it has to be this way, 
they're really well positioned to make use of all of the things that they bring to life mm-hmm. to build something new. Basically, in order to make this kind of transition, though, you have to, you know, to get to that sense of security that you know your needs are more than covered and you're okay, so you can relax and actually make your work. You have to know your numbers. You have to know what these numbers are. What do you need? What does it look like in real life? So I wanted to let everybody know that I created this real talk calculator to help you identify what's not working and start to design a better answer. And the link is in the show notes. And it's going to make your heart sink when you first go through it, I warn you, but it's going to be good for you. (laughs) Bitter medicine. That's what we do around here. (laughs) No way as an artist, you can take an honest look at all of your, your kind of numbers and not come away with like cold sweats, but Jessica has ideas for that. So (laughs) I'm here to help. So I have this calculator that I developed and I have another one with more layers to it, like more pieces to it that I'm going to be giving away in a seminar that I'll tell you about in a little bit. Um, Basically, all of these calculators will make you go, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Like, how do I make this work? But there are ways to make it work. That's what I'm just that's what we just got finished saying is like there are so many tools in your toolbox And it's a matter of thinking really differently about what does that look like in the world and starting from, starting from what you need, starting from what does it look like to feel safe and have a sustainable way that you're working that makes you happy, you know, and it doesn't necessarily look the way you think it's going to look because all of the stuff that we've been sold throughout our lives about what it looks like to be a professional artist It's not true, right? Those things don't work the way they seem to work on the outside. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is all about is understanding that, being in control of it. I love debunking. It's so fun. (laughs) And uh, it's bracing, but but liberating too, that when you sort of look at the breakdown of the numbers or, you know, reading Jessica's blog post about the uh, thousand fans and all the various critiques of that, Again, it's sort of a sinking feeling like, oh, so it doesn't really work, you know, Uh, but then it it gives you the knowledge to then kind of build something more, you know, actually doable and sustainable. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thought is like, oh my God, it doesn't work. What do you mean it doesn't work? But obviously it doesn't work because you're trying to do it and it doesn't work, right? Like we already know it doesn't work. So this is just telling you why it doesn't work. And then that gets you on the track to doing something that does work. And that's what we really want. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being here with me again, Matt. This was really fun. And no uh, we will do it again sometime. We're mm-hmm. bring back guests soon. We're going to bring back other people guests. <laughs> and then Matt and I will be on again in the future. Sounds good. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us today for The Autonomous Creative. Our show is produced by Matt Madden. Our production coordinator is Lucina Poyajandian. And our production assistant is Rhiannon Sunday. Music is by Matt Madden. And I'm your host, Jessica Abel. You can find all our takeaways, as well as the links and extras we mentioned today, plus transcripts in the show notes. Find everything you need at acpod.show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And please take a sec to pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. And we absolutely love to hear your reactions and takeaways on Instagram. Tag us at Autonomous Creative. See you next time.